From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, this week in Culver City, California. On this week's edition of the State of Green Business 2018, an inside look at our 11th annual report on the progress and promise of sustainable business. Also, a look at the state of the sustainability profession, why Larry Fink's CEO letter is a game changer, and the business case for saving turtles. We are coming out of our shell this week on 350. It's January 19th, 2018. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me, as usual, across the United States of America is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hi, Heather. Burr. Hello, Joel. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's burr everywhere except probably here. Um, it, it's just sort of become this long, cold winter. Actually, it's not long, cold. It's It's cold, super, super, super cold, super, super, super warm, because it was about 60 degrees here Friday, and it's about, it's supposed to be at 50 tomorrow, I think, so it's, um, my my winter wardrobe, all of it, is getting a very good workout this year. Like I said, it's been a really cold and warm winter this year. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we heated things up this week. We uh, put out our 2018 State of Green Business Report. It's always a little bit like uh, giving birth. And um, it, I have to say it turned out really well. And, and a lot of that is uh, some of the great writing that you and Cassandra and Anya did uh, and, and Libby Burnick on the, the 10 trends. But also just our great partnership with True Cost uh, over in the UK and the amazing data. They, they, they crunch these you know hundreds of thousands of data points to come up with these 30 or so metrics about the, well, the state of green business and how we're doing it. It, it, it turned out well. And every year... We all seem to do it a little better. It, it's a it is um I find it the the a good way of setting my head for for the year right thinking about what's ahead and and what's even farther ahead. Um, but your your stories were very um, intriguing as well. I you, you you took some of the harder ones. <laughs> Thank you, Joel. You know I do that on purpose. I did the one on on green fin uh, and the other on green finance and and synthetic biology. I do that almost every year. I take two that I really don't know much about. And because I, so I can become, so I can know enough about them to be uh, to write more about them over the course of the year. And those are two that interested me. I really I, I like taking uh, those stories that are kind of outside my zone. So yeah, those, those I, I was very uh, pleased. And sometimes you know you just don't know where they're going to take you and where where you're going to get some new insights, some new story ideas. And so uh, it's already paying dividends because I'm seeing some more about the finance area that that I want to write about. And I know Anya Hollemeiser writes about that as well, so we'll divvy up that. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And, and the buzz down here at uh, we're at, at the G Band meeting here in Culver City has been great. Yeah. So you are at the the latest G Band meeting. So any anything I should know about? What should I be writing about next week? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, you know, there's always a lot of stories there too. You know, we so this G Band is the Green Biz Executive Network, our membership group of uh, sustainability executives that we bring together in small groups over time. And this week, uh, it's being hosted uh, by Sony Pictures Studios in Culver City, which is south of downtown Los Angeles, which is pretty cool. It's always fun to be on a movie lot. Um, we've had meetings at 21st Century Fox, which is also cool. But you know, this was the, the complex that we're meeting in this week was the original studios of MGM, uh, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, back from uh, the, the mid-20s till until about 1986. And so this is where you know, they filmed Ben-Hur, Mutiny on the Bounty, The Wizard of Oz, Singing in the Rain, and then you know more recent award-winning classics like Ghostbusters. And then they do a lot of TV shows, Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune, Sharp, Shark Tank, and a bunch of others. So it's, you know, it's fun just to walk through here. But it's also really interesting because it's a city. I mean, in effect, the city, they have, you know, dry cleaners and uh, power plants and, and auto rep vehicle repair and transit systems and, and, and lots and lots of facilities of a hospital or a medical facility, at least. And so it's, it's sort of interesting to see how that comes together in, in, in that concentrated little space. And then we learn a lot about the environmental aspects of, of making movies because uh, it's, you know, traditionally it's been kind of wasteful. They, they create these sets. It's like, it's like building a, 
uh, building almost or building a you know big project that only lasts for a month or so or a couple months maybe and they knock it down and then what do you do with this stuff and how do you not just send it to a landfill which used to be the way they do it and and so now they're they've been figuring out how do you uh, reuse stuff how do you donate stuff how do you uh, use um, a lot of the wood used in movie sets is something called luan l-u-a-n which is a rainforest wood and and not uh, traditionally sustainably grown and harvested and so trying to change that with with fsc forward stewardship council certification so you know when you start i guess it's true with any business when you start peeling back the layers you see the complexity for a sustainability executive um but it, it's a little bit more so in some ways at, at a place like a sony yeah, i think they turned the harry potter uh lot into a amusement park basically you can go visit there and and be play quidditch and so forth so <laughs> that's a whole nother approach but yeah yep uh and we've got the uh here that they, they just have remnants of things you see some buildings that have been used in lots of movies and then there's parked along in, in the middle of things is the ecto one the uh ghostbusters vehicle and yeah it's kind of, it's kind of a hoot to walk around here but interesting company um and of course it's you know part of a sony bigger company that that makes uh playstation and and a number of other things. Uh, so, uh, of course, I, th- I think they still make TVs. I don't remember. But, uh, um, yeah, they do. And so lots of, uh, of of things going on. That's That's been our week here in Culver City. Let's talk about the week in sustainable business. So, um, yeah, Joel, an interesting week for investors. Again, you you mentioned the fact that you're you're trying to um, get boned up on green fin um, and investment issues. And so we had two pieces this week that um, particularly intrigued me. I'm actually going to start with the the more recent of them from our longtime your colleague and and our longtime contributor Patrick Doherty. He wrote a piece about the letter that Larry Fink, the BlackRock CEO, sent out this week to um, CEOs. He does an annual letter, and the BlackRock being, you know, one of I think the biggest investment funds. Um, they they oversee six trillion in in assets and investments and so forth. And every year, he writes a letter to to CEOs of of the companies in those funds, saying, you know, by the way, you know, we're looking for these things. And and this year. And I'm just going to give you the the quote, the the sort of money quote, if you will. Um, he he challenged them to really um, live up to their potential. Without a sense of purpose, no company, either public or private, can achieve its full potential. So basically, um, Mr. Fink putting uh, CEOs on notice that BlackRock is going to spend a whole lot more um, time looking at. Uh, how companies are acting on climate change, on how they act on on other broader social issues such as diversity, you know, workforce conditions, and so forth. And he's, you know, he's been pushing this way for a long time. But you know, his sort of philosophy now is that long term investments require this this lens. And so Patrick did a great job of of writing why um, you know we're going to see more potentially more shareholder activism um, as a result of this. Yeah, and as you as we're going to hear later in the program when I talk to uh, John Davies about the state of the profession, in some ways, um, his letter was uh, could be considered the uh, full employment for CSO Act of 2018. Um, <laughs> that, that you know what he's talking about here really sort of gives uh, a much harder edge and per- of sense of purpose uh, to sustainability executives and CSR executives uh, because uh, all of a sudden this. Um, sense of, of being responsible uh, and having a sense of purpose, which has been kind of, you know, purpose being one of those uh, sort of corporate social responsibility buzzwords over the past couple of years. We we have a track at our uh, upcoming GreenBiz conference called People and Purpose, uh, talking uh, about a lot of these things. That's now front and center. And that's now, uh, you know, part of uh, in some ways, companies' uh, responsibility, fiduciary responsibility as well. And so I'm kind of excited about that. I'm sort of interesting to see where this goes. And, you know, it's it, these things. He, he's done letters in the past about attacking short-termism uh, of executives and, and of Wall Street and elevated the goal of, of sustainable long-term growth, which is, of course, uh, the flip side of short-termism. You know, he's, he's talking a lot about these 
uh, you know, business-led efforts to you know change the way we look at markets, at at, at business, and uh, and ultimately at uh, society. And so, um, you know, it's not an overnight flip a switch kind of thing that when he does these letters, but they do have an impact. And Larry Fink is, you know, is a, is with a six trillion dollars. I mean, money talks. Yeah, and I think it's not lost. And and this is this is one of the the things that Patrick was really pointing to. I mean, the the, the title of his piece, "Why Larry Fink Isn't Waiting on Washington." The other the other sort of thread that was running through this is, you know, hey guys. Um, the government is not acting on on these things. We need infrastructure. We need sustainable infrastructure. It's your it's your job, um, is is what this this letter is also implying and saying. And it specifically points out that you know the U.S. is is failing to to invest in the future, and it has been doing so for decades. Another quote from the Fink letter: If Washington looks like it's going to be hamstrung for another three plus years, then investors are going to have to consider investing in the fixed income securities that will deliver the investments in infrastructure, especially that sustainable long-term growth requires. So again, you know, it's it's the time it's the time of the of the corporate world to really step up in this void. Yeah, and this is uh, you know what the whole Greenfin thing is all about. It's not just about the shareholder activism or uh, uh, environmental, social, and governance metrics, but it's about where we find the money to uh, take on the, you know, two-degree Paris goal and the sustainable development goals, because that's uh, six or eight or ten trillion dollars a year, depending on who you're asking, for the next 15 years or so, um, and, you know, how do we where does that money come from? It's it's not going to come from not just the U.S. government, but most governments, which are strapped and uh, the anti-tax feeling that's going on in through most of the world has been, you know, sort of starving governments. And the conservative movement is sort of, you know, less government is better. And so, you know, the investments that we used to come, they used to come from government, you know, the space program and, and the interstate highway system in the United States, and and, and a lot of other things that that got us to where. We are. Uh, they're they're not going to happen um, there, and, and let alone to take on the big challenges like like climate change and hunger and poverty. So that's what the you know what Greenfin is all about from from what my perspective in terms of where do we where do we get the money to fund the transition? Yeah, and so along these same lines, the other piece that I wanted to that really struck me and I found fascinating was um, our, our buddy Bob Langert, another fantastic interview, his ten minutes series, and this one was with Tim Smith, and Tim is the director of ESG shareholder engagement at Walden Asset Management, and so this this piece is just a a wonderful uh, Q and A about shareholder activism, right? So it's not just the the Larry Finks of the world. There are other. There's we we've we've been um, reporting for for some time now on the increase in proxies and in shareholder resolutions that require better disclosure. That require um, companies to sort of you know step up their game as far as what they're doing for climate change. I mean, you saw Exxon Mobil. Now they're reporting on different risks, and that was because of a shareholder resolution. And so this um, interview is just chuck full of um, information about like what is this I mean I, I've, I've read a lot about shareholder activism and you know it, it and there's this sort of art to it and you hear and there's actually somewhat you know you hear about these evil shareholder activists coming in and taking control but this is sort of the more subtle version of it like hey you know this is what we believe this is what we feel and it's it's the the shareholders speaking out more more vocally than than they have been in the past so yeah, and one of the things that I thought was significant and important uh, for for listeners to understand is Bob asked Tim, uh, you know, what do you think so sustainability professionals can do uh, to make the process of of shareholder engagement more fruitful for everyone? And and I and, and Tim Smith says, uh, well, one of the first things is to, to remind folks that just because investors are raising questions or pushing a point of view, they aren't your enemy. And and that's I think an important thing to re- recognize that there's this oh my god the uh, the investors are coming they got shareholder resolutions we've got to stop them I mean that's often at least traditionally has been management's perspective but from a sustainability perspective these are your allies these are people who are coming in to raise the questions to, and, and getting management's attention at least for for a minute uh, about uh, disclosure issues and governance issues and 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 risk issues around uh, climate change for example or water water issues 
that's a really important ally and, and can often uh, give some horsepower to the work that sustainability executives are doing. And uh, not that, you know, you need to to secretly uh, co-conspire with them, but um, it, it does uh, offer an opportunity for sustainability executives to to come in and, and help mediate or help educate management and educate shareholders about some of what's going on. And, and again, just as with Larry Fink's uh, message, you know, give a stronger sense of purpose to the profession of sustainability. Yeah. And then I, I just want to also give props to two companies that are mentioned specifically as having good practices in, in, in sort of the, you know, like welcoming and engaging with, with these, these outspoken shareholders, uh, Intel and Campbell's, right? Both of them apparently, and I didn't know this, they go out on an annual roadshow, their management team, and, um, and they talk to investors that have an, an ESG investing focus. And apparently Intel has done this for years. So I, I didn't know that, but it just also reminds me that, you know, getting the board engaged and getting the board more um, educated as a sustainability professional, that's a job that, 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 that they can really jump in and on and, and help. I mean, the, the board will only, at this point, I think, welcome that sort of help. So as we said earlier, this was the week that we launched our 2018 State of Green Business Report. This is our 11th annual report. We do it in partnership with TrueCost, which is a part of S&P Dow Jones Indices. Uh, just a little context for people who don't know, you know, remember this or maybe new to Green Biz or this report. We started this back in 2008, and the sensibility behind it was, you know, we cover, you know, we published. 12, 1,300 stories a year about sustainable business on the pages of greenbiz.com. And I just thought it was important to step back and say, you know, all this stuff is going on and we get kind of excited about some of it and and maybe a lot of it. And, you know, we see progress in terms of more companies doing more things. But is it actually moving the needle in terms of the, the challenges, of environmental and social challenges that it's intended to create? And so we started, you know, creating some some uh, metrics of our own that sort of looked at, you know, uh, how much more en energy productive the economy is, and, and how many companies are doing green building and a number of other things, and and a little bit simplistic. But then in 2011, I think a true cost came along, and they true cost looks at uh, several hundred metrics of several thousand companies and and started to create this this index which is just so cool uh, looking at the S&P 500 US based companies and also uh, the S&P global uh, index of 1200 companies and there's some overlap so i don't know it's you know 15 1600 companies uh, around the world and, and aggregating the the data about each of those to say you know, what's happening with uh, carbon emissions? What's happening with reporting? And how many companies are doing scope three reporting around their supply chains? How many stock exchanges now have uh, sustainability requirements? And it's just it's just pretty interesting. And then, of course, there's the 10 trends, which we've uh, just talked a little bit about a few minutes ago. So we did a webcast this week to launch it, as we always do, with uh, Richard Madison, the CEO of TrueCost, and and Libby Burnick, uh, part, also part of the senior team at TrueCost, and myself. And, uh, well, you listened in, Heather. I mean, what did you take away from the conversation? So, I, yeah, I was, I was fascinated, and thank you very much. I, I was great. I was like, I have to put this on my calendar. Um, so there were, th were a couple of things. I, I, went, I, I love thinking in threes. So I guess... For me, my first big takeaway was that, to some extent, many industry sectors really don't have a choice about addressing these risks publicly. The automotive sector is probably the most striking example of this. You know, they're they're undergoing just a massive transition. If they don't act on low carbon technologies, they will be gone. Considering all the countries that that have now set um, low emissions goals and, and and electric vehicle, you know, sort of said we will have EVs after this date. I, I think one of the most astonishing sort of data points uh, for me was the fact that um, just how much natural capital costs have increased in the past 12 months. So natural capital is, is the process of looking at nature and, and, and the different things that, that a company uses, uh, water and earth and land and, and you know, all of these different things um, that we don't really 
put a cost on, like you don't necessarily have to pay for that that thing, but it really does cost the world something. So um, I was astonished to hear how much, just how much natural capital costs have increased. So what I thought we would do first, so that was sort of my first big sort of aha, and I'd like to queue up two excerpts um, that, that really address how the global interest in a low-carbon economy is affecting what companies disclose and how they go about doing it. The first clip comes from uh, Richard, Richard Madison. He is the CEO, as you mentioned, of TrueCost. And by the way, I don't know that you mentioned this, but TrueCost is now part of the S&P Dow Jones indices, right? And uh, Richard gives us some economic perspective, broad perspective on sort of the trend. And so that's the first clip you're going to hear. And then the second chunk of audio you'll hear addresses how corporate sustainability professionals should, should be responding. So not just when it comes to reporting, but also in potentially recasting their targets in terms that make more sense to investors and shareholders. So, you know, the way you express how you're going to reduce carbon emissions, if you just pick a percentage, that that's that's great. But if you per, you know, if you then say this percentage will will affect costs in a certain way, that's better for the investors and shareholders for them to understand the the impact. Um, and I like Libby's section because it's like a playbook, right, of how corporates should consider responding to the heightened interest in, in risk disclosure and, and use it to recast it. So um, the second chunk of audio comes from Libby Burnick, and she's the global head of corporate business for TrueCost. So I'm just going to let them speak for themselves. Um, first Richard and then Libby. We've analyzed 1,200 global companies and 500 U.S.-based companies. Uh, for their natural capital and environmental risks. Um, and really, I think we're entering into a year this year in particular uh, and from last year where we're seeing a huge transition in the economy. There's uh, a massive transition underway, for example, in mobility. And uh, earlier this week, the CEO of Fiat uh, basically said that the automotive industry will either change or die. Um, within the next five to seven years, we'll see transformations in that industry that we would not have anticipated 10 years ago and that have really been forced on the industry rather than industry um, internal changes. And so I think in order to understand this transition, we need better information, better data, um, and the transition will really be very important because it is the core to building a stronger, more resilient global economy. So what that really means is business as usual for most industries is not going to be business as usual going forward. And business as usual, it's quite clear from um, some of the the analysis coming out of the Paris Agreement, business as usual is obviously not sustainable. So we really need to look at um, the transition. There will be winners and losers. And in fact, there are significant unpriced risks. So in some of these key findings, what you'll see is our analysis of the extent to which there are exposures um, for, for companies and their investors to, to risks that are becoming rapidly priced. What we did uh, with this study this year, is, as with previous years, is we looked at natural capital costs. So these really are the overall um, impacts and dependencies on nature that companies have. So these are things like the dependency on water uh, and other types of uh, impacts like that. They're also the dependencies on um, you know, the impacts created by climate uh, change gases, such as carbon dioxide. Um, waste, um, pesticides and fertilizers and various things like that. And what we found actually was really a slightly worrying finding, which is that this year natural capital costs are 24% higher than they were uh, last year. And in fact, they reversed a three-year decline in natural capital costs in absolute terms overall um, for companies. So we found that for the first time, the total costs associated with the top 1,200 global companies, and these are unpaid for costs largely, uh, amounted to $4.1 trillion, uh, and that amounts to um, over two times, around two times net income of those companies. So quite a, quite a significant exposure. Uh, should that cost be priced? It, it seems to boil down to three things. Better environmental reporting, stronger links between environmental performance and business performance, and better targets. On the first, it, it was clear from the State of Green Biz research that Richard was describing that corporate environmental performance reporting is not going away. Uh, more stakeholders are expecting data, and even their interests are becoming much more sophisticated, whether it's uh, customers asking about their suppliers 
or investors asking about their holdings. So if you're in a company that is not disclosing environmental performance data, it's pretty clear that you're in a rapidly dwindling minority group. You should start disclosing on your environmental performance. If your company is already disclosing, and I suspect that many of the people on the line are in companies like that, it's not about more reporting, it's about better reporting. So focus on disclosing data, quantitative data, on just those most material issues. A good next step is also to take a look at who your top investors are and understand how are they looking at environmental issues and how are they incorporating that environmental information into their investment strategies. In addition to having this better reporting, uh, Joel, as you were describing, it's also increasingly clear that there's a growing appetite for understanding the actual financial implications associated with environmental performance. And as Rich was saying, where there's unpriced business risks and opportunities. Companies should start mining their own performance data to understand when and how these unpriced risks are actually going to be realized as financial costs. So, for example, take your carbon footprint data and estimate carbon pricing risks. How much are they and when are they actually going to start to accrue? Positive benefits and value creation are also important to understand, as Rich was describing. So now is the time to look at your company's business model and see what the opportunities are for uh, greener products and services and what the actual revenue growth might be, or looking at strategy and understanding how to communicate about positive benefits, whether it's uh, how you're communicating about uh, sustainable development goals or other kinds of positive impacts, but it's something that we're increasingly seeing uh, investors want to know. The final point is that companies need to rethink their ambitions and, and set better targets. Rich was describing the gap between commitments that are being made in Paris and what company target setting looks like. And better targets are going to be ones that are in context, in the context of the business strategy, but also environmental and government context. The first step for companies should be to apply a business lens to a target. What if it, instead of having, uh, say, a 10% carbon reduction target, the target was to avoid a $500 million carbon pricing risk? That reframing of an environmental target into a business target might actually catch the attention of the people who are making decisions about capital allocation. Companies should also take another look at the targets and make sure they're in line with science and policy. For carbon, especially timely, as Rich was describing. Right now, countries around the world are setting climate policy in line with commitments they made in Paris. But this state of green biz research showed that corporate targets are being set at much lower ambitions than what policy is heading towards. So if you haven't calculated what a two-degree target looks like for your company, it's very important to do so. Okay, so I just talked a lot, Joel, but the second takeaway, um, I was also very struck by the discussion thread about um, you know, the, the frustration that, that sustainability professionals have over the shape that reporting should take. We have written often about all of the different um, frameworks that they could use, and um, you could use this one, you could use that one, maybe do three, do one, you know, what do you have to do? And, um, you know, one, one sort of observation, uh, you could call it a complaint maybe, is, is that, you know, that, that corporate sustainability teams make about reporting is that it's not required, right? It's voluntary, um, and there's so many different ways of doing it. That's changing. Yeah. The U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is changing. Yeah, and and it, one of the other complaints, and we hear that a lot at these uh, at the Greenbiz Executive Network meetings, is you know, is anyone out there reading these things? Because I don't think they really know. They don't really capture that or have a way of uh, you know looking at readership metrics. Let alone did the people who read this change uh, any opinions or perspectives about our company? 
And so they you know they put these out there because they're they're not uh, legally required, but they're kind of uh, social license to operate required, uh, or or maybe required by customers, particularly B two B customers, uh, to to put, putting this out. And and they use it as an internal tool to to check on how they're doing on on a whole range of measures, or you know that most of which or many of which go to their own efficiency, operational efficiency. Um, or uh, just the ability to, to attract and retain talent, but you know they because it's not required, they just they just don't have a lot of feedback. And the the state of the art is still kind of it's a PDF for most companies or a web uh, page with with not necessarily a lot of uh, feedback loops. So I think that's one of the big challenges. And then yeah, there's the fact that there's a number of different frameworks and standards about what you actually say and how you report. And it's uh, it, it's complicated for them, and I think it just feels like the state of the art of that hasn't changed all that much over the past uh, twenty or so years. And it, it maybe you know companies talk a lot about you know should we still do this or can we do it? How can we do it differently? It's ripe for disruption. It is ripe for disruption, and I think think that the movement that the task force that the G20 set up to um, recommend the way of, of talking about this in financial, core financial filings. Um, I think that will have a big impact. And also, um, you're seeing some stock exchanges now start to require some of this information. Um, so it is changing. The U.S. is not leading the way. But for more on this, I want to go back to Libby, um, Libby Burnick. She's got more about the ev- evolution of reporting and why companies from the Asia-Pacific region may be speaking to investors more directly than companies based in the United States. So here's Libby. Well, there's a couple rays of hope, Joel, from my perspective. Um, One is that a lot of stock exchanges around the world are now trying to, uh, are now issuing guidelines on what kind of reporting is required if you want to be listed on that exchange. And many times with that uh, guidance comes additional information on exactly what companies should be considering as they look at reporting. So we're seeing guidance and clarity come from the stock exchanges around the world. We're also getting a better handle, I think, or as a community on exactly what environmental indicators and issues are most relevant for a particular industry and how they are or are not creating financial business risks and opportunities. But I, I will say that uh, one of my favorite comments over the years about voluntary reporting came from somebody who said, I know this is, I love voluntary reporting, it's great, but I wish somebody would just tell me what to do. So I think we have that tension that this is voluntary, uh, but at the same time, we want clear guidance on exactly how voluntary it's, what the scope of the voluntary reporting should be. There's quite a few exchanges that are adopting different approaches. Some are requiring disclosure. Others are taking an approach where they uh, might ask the company to uh, explain uh, how this does not affect them. So uh, it's, again, uh, putting the burden on the company to Uh, either comply or explain why it's not relevant. And we're seeing those kind of listing requirements uh, in Singapore, uh, as well as Hong Kong, for example. Singapore having uh, requirements to disclose. And I think the interesting implication for that for companies is that we're seeing that there there will actually be better disclosure uh, from companies in uh, the Asia-Pacific region than perhaps even companies in the U.S. So you're going to have this curious condition, I think, where uh, companies in the U.S. will be competing for capital uh, with companies in Asia who are more transparent uh, to the market on these issues. So I love examples, as every journalist does. And so uh, probably my favorite part of the webcast, uh, uh, the last one, my, my third takeaway was was who's doing it? <laughs> who's moving to this new philosophy? Who's really um, pushing the envelope, if you will, and uh, how, uh, how, how they report their risks on how they report their opportunities associated with, with um, the low carbon economy. And so, Joel, I really appreciated your question on the webcast, asking both Richard and Libby to um, name names, <laughs> to provide examples of organizations that are early adopters, if you will, of this new philosophy and disclosure. So um, unless you have anything else to say, I'd love to close out the segment with two excerpts, starting with Richard 
and ending with Libby. Let's hear them. Look, I think we've definitely seen many companies that have have seen the light, and they've seen the light from a risk perspective, um, which has driven significant changes. We've seen companies adopt internal carbon pricing. Uh, we've seen some of the leading companies adopt natural capital assessments internally, which has highlighted in financial terms the risk associated with not just carbon, but also uh, water risk. Um, and other types of risk associated with dependency on uh, different ecosystems. Uh, and so we've, we've, we've seen quite a few companies, and I'm kind of reticent to, to single out any companies, but um, the, uh, we've definitely seen uh, some of the leading companies adopt a highly analytical uh, approach to analyzing risk and using that analytical approach in discussion with shareholders. So for example, we've seen Puma, um, back in 2011 and 12, um, publish uh, an environmental profit and loss statement that we helped them with at the time. Uh, and since then, they've really uh, published at the group level, the curing level, um, many other reports um, that have highlighted um, how they're making progress against that highly analytical framework that they initially published. That has driven quite a significant change, as I understand it, with respect to their interactions with their shareholders and the type of shareholders that they're attracting, as opposed to the ones they had in the past. Um, and so we would expect that as a general trend, um, engaging uh, shareholders and potential shareholders um, with uh, more analytical approaches that resonate with them Will allow companies to to you know attract those types of shareholders that are willing to hold their stock for longer, um, hold more conviction in their companies, and actually that 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 should be good for everyone because it should promote a little more long-termism in markets, which is really what's necessary if we were to um, build the foundation for a more sustainable economy. There's a a large and growing community of companies that are looking at and quantifying environmental profit and loss. So uh, we have Axel Nobel, uh, BASF has uh, released uh, three years of information on their website on looking at uh, their environmental and social performance. We, of course, have the Natural Capital Coalition that had a large number of companies join together and develop a standardized approach and conduct pilot studies on uh, environmental profit and loss frameworks. So there's been a, a large uptake, and I think what we're seeing uh, is not only our companies uh, doing, as Richard described, rolling out that EPNL across an entire business, making it operational within the business. We're also seeing companies now add social measures to their environmental profit and loss and looking at the total value the company creates, both impacts and positive benefits. So the number of companies doing this has increased and the breadth and depth at which they're looking at pricing these impacts and opportunities has also grown. Hi, it's Joel again. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll check out Center Stage, our new podcast featuring live interviews from GreenBiz events. You'll find conversations with notables like Paul Hawken, Annie Leonard, Janet Napolitano, and executives from a wide range of companies. Check it out. Go to greenbiz.com slash center stage or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't really talk about the state of green business without talking about the state of what it means to be a sustainability professional. So this is an appropriate time to do that. And I happen to be down here, as I said, in Southern California with my friend and colleague, John Davies, Vice President and Senior Analyst. And uh, John is the keeper of all things sustainability profession. And so, John, uh, first of all, happy State of Green Business Week. Well, happy State of Green Business Week to you. Back at you, Joel. So, I mean, just to start off, what is the state of the sustainability profession? You know, every other year we publish a state of the profession report, and we're just in the midst of collecting data, but we've got some early results. But I think the first thing I'd say is the state of the profession is probably right where Larry Fink of BlackRock says it is, where sustainability, has to, you know, companies have to contribute to society 
and deliver financial performance. And I think that's really where the state of the profession is. So that means that the people who that come to the Green Biz Executive Network, for example, that are working on environmental and some social issues in the companies are now more valued or seen as part of the core business? Yeah, and in fact, we asked a couple of new questions in our survey. Um, one was, what's the highest title of uh, you know a sustainability executive in your organization? This actually was a question that goes back to 2010 when we first started this. And every year, it sort of hovered around 37, 38% of vice presidents, senior vice presidents. This year, it's bumped up to 43%. So we see that as a, a major change. And then the couple of new questions that we asked about, well, one was, does your highest ranking sustainability professional report to the board of directors? And 53% said yes, and only 33% said no, with another 13% who didn't know or were clueless. And then the other question we asked was, would you still be on the current trajectory of your sustainability program if the leading proponent of sustainability, you know, the highest ranking officer and the CEO were to leave? And 55% said, yes, we'd still be on the current trajectory. Only 19% said no, and then 26%, again, just didn't know. Do you have any sense that along with these growing titles and I guess more job security that the kinds of responsibilities or kinds of remits that these uh, professionals have is growing, expanding in any way? One of the things we started asking about, uh, I think, third survey ago or so, back in 2014, was where is sustainability getting embedded into other parts of the organization? And there's a couple of areas where we're seeing a really big uptick. For example, in supply chain sustainability or responsibility, back in 2014, we had 10% of people say there were embedded resources. In this year's survey, 40%. So it's gone up from 10% then, 26% in 2016, all the way up to 40% this year. And another area of growth, which sort of ties in with our Verge uh, conferences, is around facilities, where back in 2014, only 7% had embedded professional sustainability professionals. That's bounced up to 31%. So we're, we're really seeing some growth in where companies are embedding professionals. And I was just on the phone with Suzanne Fallander last week from Intel talking about supply chain transparency. And they have 20 people in their supply chain responsibility organization. But a lot of that still seems like it's around compliance. Are we seeing any indication that these sustainability professionals are getting closer to the revenue side of the business? Well, I don't think it's really about compliance by embedding these. In fact, at our Green Biz 18 conference, we're going to have a supply chain transparency challenge. And that's going to have a lot of procurement officers in there talking about what they're doing. And this is not just about compliance. It's about adding new revenue and it's avoiding risk in your supply chain and going really deep. So, you know, brand holders are driving this, consumers are, are pushing them toward this, but then everyone along the supply chain has to be aware that this means business if they're not complying. And I really think it goes back to, uh, you know, what Larry Fink said about you've got to contribute to society and deliver financial performance. And, you know, I could start interviewing you and say, isn't that why we have a track on finance that we haven't had before at Green Biz 18. Yep, Green Fin is the new uh, new black. So one of the things I you've said for years, and it's always you know been stuck with me, is that the role of chief sustainability officer is really about being chief translation officer for the rest of the company. And I'm wondering, as you look out at what's going on, you spend a lot of time with CSOs and and the, and the, go inside their operations. Is that ability improving? Are they getting better at translating? And is that maybe why uh, I don't know that they are more valued and rising up within the ranks? Yeah, I I think it is. I think they're getting better at translating into money. And I think that's the real key for it. 
I, I think, and you know, I even I struggle with the terms of sustainability and CSR and citizenship, but I think there's this divergence that's sort of happening where the sustainability professionals are really digging into the business and, and delivering opportunities and profitability and, and money to the business. I think there's some other areas of sort of traditional CSR that may be getting a little bit left behind because they haven't, they haven't worked hard enough to monetize what uh, the, the impact can be to the company. And when is the uh, state of the profession re- uh, report going to come out? Well, we've extended the um, invitation for people to participate. So if anyone wants to, they can reach me at jdavies at greenbiz.com and I'll send them a link to to submit, you know, their part of it. But we're looking at sometime in April because we're we've reached out to more groups to partner with us and bring in some European perspective and some others. So we're excited about it. We all we're already at over a thousand respondents for the report. Cool. Well, the state of the profession is sound. Details to follow in April. John Davies, Vice President, Senior Analyst. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks, Joel. See you in Phoenix. As I mentioned in last week's show, we held our meeting of the Green Biz Executive Network at FPL New Era uh, Energy in Juno Beach, Florida last week. And one of the things we did uh, last week uh, afterwards, the group went and visited the Loggerhead Marine Life Center uh, in Juno Beach. And we got this fabulous tour by Jack Lighton, the president and CEO uh, of this facility where they're uh, educating, doing research, and and, an actual hospital for loggerhead turtles, these amazing creatures that live 50, 60, 100 100, human span uh, lives. And, you know, one of the things, Jack, that we talk about in our world, like, what's the business case for doing this? You know, is it just about saving the critters? And and you told this really interesting story about uh, you know, what happens from a business perspective when these things go away. That's right. Well, my background, interestingly enough, before coming to Loggerhead as a manager, was heavy industrial manufacturing. However, I grew up on the cause of ocean conservation with my parents. We were boaters. We were always involved in Loggerhead Marine Life Center as a family. And after I transitioned out of my former career into my current career, I had a real keen sense for sometimes the roadblock that we as conservationists run into when we only talk about the passion of why we're saving a particular animal. And in our case, that's the sea turtle. And so here we are in Palm Beach County, and for for decades we've had one of the most important sea turtle nesting grounds in the world. And what was really interesting to me coming in um, as the manager of Loggerhead and having to have the conservation conversation with a whole multitude of people on why the work that we do here is so important I realized very quickly that there were a lot of people that were very turned off by talking to us, and not just us at Loggerhead, but many conservation organizations, because they felt like they were. It was just off-putting to have a conservation chat with them. So, you know, we because had- it was about saving a species. It was about all the things that we're doing wrong as humans. Yeah, I think sometimes, to be very honest, um, we as conservationists sometimes are the party of no. Don't go to the beach. Don't use the beach. Don't swim in the ocean. Don't, no, 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 because of the animal. Well, the reality for sea turtle nesting is you you can cohabitate on the beaches during nesting season with sea turtles. You can use the beach. You can be responsible. You can dim your lights. You can clean up after yourself. We don't want you digging four foot deep holes, but go and enjoy the beach. Instead, I think many times we were guilty of saying no too much and don't too much and maybe giving perspectives that weren't really on point. But what happens when, when we fail at this, when we, when we do disturb their habitat, when the turtles do go away? You told a story about a resort, I think it was in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and there is really sort of the business case, as I was getting to before, uh, about what happens when we don't succeed at preserving these species. Yeah, so we have a saying here at Loggerhead Marine Life Center, the sea turtle tells us the health of the ocean. The ocean tells us the health of the planet. And I had the opportunity about six years ago to address a global conference of um, resort hoteliers and general managers uh, that came in to a local resort here in the Palm Beaches. And we were talking about the importance of sea turtles to the economy. And I have to tell you that a lot of people had a very big raised eyebrow when Jack Light and the turtle guy was coming in to talk about monetizing a sea turtle. But I had the opportunity to play a beautiful clip that was from some resort islands in Portugal. Um, 
interestingly enough, unfortunately, the leatherback sea turtle, which is the largest sea turtle in the ocean, grows upwards of 2,000 pounds. It eats its body weight every day in jellyfish. It's one of the world's best natural predators to jelly. Unfortunately, in that part of the region and in the world, uh, this, this animal is almost extinct. So what was interesting about the clip that I played, before I really got into my pitch about why Palm Beach County is so unique in terms of sea turtle nesting and our biodiversity and our, our marine life, I actually got to play this clip and it was the general manager for a very high-end resort on a resort island whose economy only relied on luxury tourism. And one of the questions that was asked about the health of the ecosystem on their island was, how are things doing? And the resort general manager, who's standing in this incredibly posh resort, sort of turned and panned over to the beach with the camera and said, I wish we didn't kill the turtles. When we killed the turtles, we killed our economy. And, and the reporter said, well, what do, you, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, look at our beach. And there was, there was piles of rotting jellyfish on the beach, and he said, can you imagine when people come in from all around the world and check in here, I have to tell them, I'm so sorry, you can't use our beach. It smells awful. It's dangerous. There's jellyfish everywhere. It's not pleasant. And by the way, don't swim in the water. Yeah. You're not allowed to. It's very, very dangerous because you know what? They, they killed the turtles and the, and the, the, the leatherback sea turtle is almost like a, a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week vacuum cleaner. And what's interesting is when a piece of the ecosystem goes out of balance, we can typically see that in the animal. In this case, we're talking about the leatherback sea turtle uh, becoming extinct and jellyfish populations exploding. Now, there's a lot of reasons jellyfish populations are exploding, but in this particular region of the world where the leatherbacks are now uh, in effect extinct, this exacerbates a significant problem. And part of what led the, a lot of sea turtles extinct is plastics in the ocean, climate change, sure. uh, development, a number of things. And, and you guys are doing a really impressive uh, job of, of helping educate that, not just here in, in Florida, but around the world. Uh, FPL, uh, who hosted our meeting, is one of your big supporters, and, and our kudos to them for, for doing that. And, and it looks like as you expand and continue to do your great work, there's a lot more room for that. So check it out. It's uh, www.marinelife.org, the uh, Loggerhead Marine Life Center in uh, Juno Beach, Florida. Uh, Jack Lighton's president and CEO. Thanks, Jack. Thanks so much. And that's another 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we've mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, uh, look for the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, which is the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce, and Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>